Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Travel restrictions at the U.S.-Mexico border will continue into August. Think of how many birthdays, weddings, funerals this impacts. It really kind of starts to show the human toll. I'm Christina Kim with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. Bidding wars are breaking out amongst home buyers in San Diego as housing prices continue to soar. Half of the homes sold for more than $750,000, and half of the homes of the month sold for less. A look at how Coronado is flouting California's affordable housing mandates. And surfing becomes an Olympic sport this year. But will Native Hawaiians be shut out? That's ahead on Midday Edition. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Restrictions on non-essential travel at the U.S.-Mexico border will continue for another month, according to the Department of Homeland Security. The travel limitations that were originally imposed in March 2020 have kept families and friends apart and hurt small businesses. And while both San Diego County and the state of Baja California have more than 60% of their eligible population fully vaccinated, U.S. officials point to surging COVID-19 infections on both sides of the border as the main reason for delaying reopening. Joining me now with more is Gustavo Solis, a reporter for The Voice of San Diego. Gustavo, welcome. Well, thank you. Okay, so can you remind us, what exactly are the current restrictions which were initially set to expire at midnight? Who really is able to cross right now? Officially, the restrictions are for non-essential travel. What that means practically is Mexican nationals, or really just any non-U.S. nationals with valid tourist visas, cannot come into the U.S. The restrictions still allow for the transportation of trucks, for people on student and uh, business visas, and for Americans going south to TJ and Valle de Guadalupe and elsewhere, they can go south and come back as they please. So it mostly impacts non-nationals who are trying to cross the border into the U.S. What reasons did the Department of Homeland Security really give for extending the restrictions another month? 
Well, not many other than than what you said, right? They're concerned about the spread of COVID, which is what they've been saying for more than a year now. That's where a lot of the frustration comes from, just the lack of clarity on this coming from Washington, D.C. Officials here in San Diego have asked repeatedly for some kind of checklist or roadmap or, or metric that we need to get to in order to reopen the border, and they just haven't gotten it. Officials in Mexico are asking the same thing. I reported last week on this push by the Mexican government to really increase vaccinations along the border region with the explicit goal of reopening the border to non-essential travel. But the U.S. government is just silent. They're not saying what we need to do in order to reopen. And I think that uncertainty is really causing a lot of frustration, especially as this restriction keeps on getting extended month after month after month with no end sight. My understanding is that the reopening of the border, as you just said, is really tied to vaccination rates. Is there a ratio of vaccination rates needed to be able to open the border? No, no. And, and that's sort of the issue. There, there's no magic number that the federal government has given to the public that says, all right, if we get to X percent of vaccination and if Mexico gets to X percent of vaccination rates, then we'll reopen. That doesn't exist. So it really has a lot of uncertainty. San Diego Mayor Todd Gloria, along with other leaders, have implored the Department of Homeland Security to reopen the border, saying if people can fly into Mexico, then why can't they cross over land? Do you have a sense of what's driving these somewhat uneven policies? I think the mayor, and he co-signed that letter with the mayors of Imperial Beach, Chula Vista, Coronado, and County Supervisor Nora Vargas, they have a really fair point, right? It makes no sense that somebody can fly from Mexico City to LA and then drive down to San Diego but someone from Tijuana can't walk across to San Diego, right? I mean, that on its face sounds absurd. And the federal government hasn't really done a good job of explaining why. What impact is this having on the region's economy? I know it's been particularly tough for small business owners who really rely on this border traffic. The border restrictions seem to be favoring big corporations at the expense of small businesses and mom and pop businesses. The example, like I said, right, the border is still open for trucks, freight trains. Uh, a lot of companies have moved out of California, out of the U.S., and have manufacturing hubs in Tijuana. They can still do business as normal. They can still get out of paying higher wages in the U.S. and still be in business. But for small shops along the border who rely on consumers traveling from Tijuana to San Diego, they're they're really, really hurting. Now, last figures I had was to date more than 200 businesses have permanently closed in San Ysidro. I think Jason Wells was on record saying that they're seeing a decrease in about 7.7 million in sales each week. So if you want economic impact, that's it, right? Rough back on the envelope math is about 31 million in sales lost in San Ysidro. San Diego's sales tax rate is 7.75. So that about a month, rough math, is about $2.5 million in lost sales tax revenue for San Diego. Obviously, not all of it stays in San Diego. It goes to the state and the county. But that's $2.5 million of tax dollars that we're losing because of these border restrictions. And beyond these economic impacts, which, as you are outlining, are large, this is also making it really difficult for families who live on both sides of the border to even see each other. What are you hearing about how families are coping? Well, it's not just hearing. I see it in my own family, right? I mentioned the example of people flying from Mexico to LA and down to San Diego. My grandma did that because that was the only way she could visit us after we all got vaccinated. We hadn't seen her in a year. She's 88 and that took a toll on her just traveling like that instead of just flying to Tijuana and walking across. I had to take time off work to go and pick her up. 
that's a minor inconvenience for our family, but I recognize that we're better off than most, right? We had the means to get that plane ticket. But what if you're not in that position, right? That, that prevents you from seeing the family. And it's taken a huge toll, a human toll here on the region, right? You think about San Diego, how many families have cousins or brothers or sisters living on separate sides of the border and they can't cross and see each other? They have to go like to all these extra steps to see that. I mean, that, that takes a huge toll. Like think of how many birthdays, weddings, funerals, this impacts and it really kind of starts to show the human toll. I've been speaking with Gustavo Solis, reporter for The Voice of San Diego. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Bidding wars are breaking out among buyers as home prices in San Diego reach another record high. In June, the median price for a home in the county reached $750,000, up about $150,000 from this time last year. An extremely low inventory of homes for sale and low mortgage rates are two big factors driving prices up. But so is migration from buyers coming into San Diego from even higher-priced housing markets in California. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Mike Freeman. And Mike, welcome to the program. Uh, Happy to be here. Remind us, if you would, first off, what does median home price mean? Is that the average home price in San Diego? No, it means that half of the homes sold for more than 750000 and half of the homes of the month sold for less than that. So, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a way to take out the extremes, right? So if you had a $35 million purchase, the average would really shoot high. But in the median, it's just one of the data points above the middle. And does that include condos or just single-family homes? No, that's condos. Condos as well. So the median keeps climbing. June's numbers are even higher than they were in May. Isn't that right? Correct. It, it, it's been a very hot summer. It's been really driven, again, by the you know the low mortgage rates and you know also kind of their increased opportunities for people to work from home coming out of the pandemic or wanting to work from home coming out of the pandemic. And and therefore, you know, it's kind of fueled this strong, strong demand for housing, particularly in the suburbs, right? Lower density areas um, where people can, um, you know, kind of have their castle and work from it. Is that the theory about why people aren't selling? Well, I, I think the uh, the theory from the real estate agents I spoke to about what people aren't selling is, you know, if you sell, where do you go from there? So, you know, the idea is, is or the notion is that uh, you couldn't replace what you've got, you know, even if you sold for, you know, um, so $750,000, you, you know, pocket that profit um, uh, on your equity. If you wanted to live somewhere in San Diego County, you would have turn around and probably pay more. We've been talking about home in inventory being so low. Is there any way to express how low that inventory is? I mean, is it historically low? Is it um, what what are they talking about in terms of how low the housing inventory is? Is there any way that you can describe it? Well, I mean, the MLS has data that showed that the inventory in San Diego County for homes and condos, was actually, you know, that's the number of homes for sale, listed for sale, uh, was actually less than a month. And typically, two years ago, before the pandemic, San Diego had 5.5 months of inventory, uh, you know, available. So some 10,000 
listings on single family and some 3,000 listings on condos and townhomes. So, you know, now it's down to 2,000 home listings and 1,000 condo listings. And so the inventory is just very, very thin right now. And San Diego has failed to hit the state targets for new home construction, hasn't it? How far behind are we? Within the city limits, the target was about 88,000 units. And the city uh, builders delivered about 4,200 units um, on some updated figures that I, I found this morning. So it's still, you know, 50% below what the target was. How is that low inventory playing out in actual real estate sales in San Diego? What typically happens when a house goes on the market these days? Well, from what realtors have told me is, is that, you know, particularly in a, you know, a new property that is highly sought after coming on the market, I mean, it just launches a bidding war. Um, and people are coming in and bidding above the asking price. And in one you know, anecdote, a realtor told me her clients bid uh, $10,000 over the asking price on a you know, kind of a newly listed hot property. And, and they didn't get it because you know, someone else bid $45,000 over the asking price. And, and that home was like right in the sweet spot of the you know, median price homes. I think it was a $775 or thereabouts price. So you get people at, routinely now at doing um, overbids. Wow. What about young couples who might be looking for a starter home? Have those prices risen dramatically too? Well, that that has been a kind of the category, again, anecdotally from re- realtors, has been the category that has been the the hardest for people to, to break into because that's where a lot of the overbidding is happening. Buyers who are stretching to reach um, the median to get into a home. Yeah, you're reporting that buyers from Orange County and elsewhere in California are also driving home prices up in San Diego. Why is that happening? Yeah, well, if you look at the median prices up there, it's even higher. And, you know, San Francisco is another sort of situation. And, and again, um, uh, from uh, what I was um, told is, you know, if, if you're in, uh, in those regions and, you know, you, your money just goes a lot farther down here, you can, instead of getting a smaller place or, you know, a townhome, an attached home, um, you know, down here, you can get a single family home for less. So do we have to wait until San Diego can build itself out of this low inventory housing market? Or are there other factors that might start to stabilize the market? Well, there are clearly other factors that would, would start to stabilize the market because building would be, is, it would be a long, long process, right? Um, but clearly higher interest rates, if inflation really takes hold and, and interest rates start to rise, that, that clearly will put a damper on demand. Um, so that, you know, that's one of the things. And I mean, there's just, you know, general uh, economic conditions, you know, we're, a, we're coming out of the pandemic in a, in, a, in a hot market. So that that could be an issue uh, if, if our economic conditions start to slow. Um, and another thing too, and, and kind of um, in a different tact there, is I was told anecdotally that, you know, home construction has really been slow, new home construction, you know, in part because there was a lumber shortage earlier this year, right? And things, how very, very expensive um, building materials and hard to find labor. So construction employment, I understand, is now back to pre-pandemic levels, but, you know, still hasn't really taken off. And so, you know, that's slowed it down too. 
you're not seeing a lot of the new home inventory coming on. And what's the forecast for San Diego real estate for the rest of the year? Well, according to the you know, CoreLogic people, they they continue to think that this is going to continue. CoreLogic's uh, economists have estimated that you know there'd be 11 percent price gain uh, between now and May 2022 in the median. I've been speaking with San Diego Union Tribune reporter Mike Freeman, and Mike, thank you so much. Uh, thank you. Hello, podcast listener. Full disclosure, I'm going to make some assumptions about you. This probably isn't the only podcast you enjoy. Blink if I'm right. (laughs) It's probably not the only thing you watch or listen to on KPBS either. If I'm right about that, then I'm guessing you make it a point to check in on a regular basis to see what's new, take in the latest and greatest, and then you go back to your daily life until we happily come together again. We're sort of like a virtual buffet when you're hungry for information and entertainment. You go to KPBS and want to eat, uh, consume all you can, right? Well, you should know that when you become a member of KPBS, you're keeping the entire TV, radio, and online trays full of fresh ideas, like the tasty podcast you're enjoying right now. Help feed your appetite for KPBS. Become a member today. Just go to kpbs.org, click the blue Give Now button, and make a donation. Thank you. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh with Christina Kim in for Jade Heineman. Coronado, with its beautiful beaches and historic hotel, is one of California's top tourist destinations. But for the many low-wage workers who keep the island running, living there is next to impossible. State officials last year ordered the city to plan for a lot more affordable housing. But as KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen explains, the city is not on board with that change. Bye. Nos vemos en la tarde. Evangelina Preciado kisses her 10-year-old son Ricardo goodbye as she leaves for work. Preciado lives with her husband and three kids in a small mobile home in Chula Vista. She works as a room attendant at the Hotel del Coronado. She says she'd love to live in the community where she works. That would let her ditch her commute across the bridge and bike or walk to her job. I love this place. This is beautiful. It's quiet clean. We have the beach. So everything is awesome here. Add to those perks Coronado's low crime rate and good schools and parks. But on a hotel worker's salary, there's no way Preciado could afford to live in Coronado, where finding a two-bedroom home for less than $3,000 a month is a steal. As soon as she's off work. I just feel that I have to leave and come back to my home. But this is like my second home because I pass more hours in the island than my home, but I cannot live in here. I just come and work and I have to go back. Preciado's circumstance is hardly unique. Coronado is one of many high-end tourist destinations in California where low-wage workers staff pricey hotels, shops, and restaurants, but can't afford to live where they work. State lawmakers have tried to fix this by requiring cities to zone for dramatically more housing than ever before. Last year, the state ordered Coronado to plan for 912 new homes over the next eight years. More than half those homes are meant to be affordable for low-income households. We are um, essentially trying to comply with an absurd and uh, not sensible uh, state law that's requiring us to be here. 
The order from Sacramento to add more housing was not well received in Coronado. Mayor Richard Bailey and the city council last month voted to draft a smaller housing plan. On Tuesday, the council unanimously approved a plan with about a third of the homes that are required. Bailey said at last month's council meeting, the number the city picked is realistic. Um, it's not based on a pie-in-the-sky number from the state, uh, which had no basis in reality whatsoever, did not take into account our existing land use, uh, size, not take into account available space, our existing infrastructure, our sewage, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This number does that. Coronado sued to get a smaller housing allocation, but lost. It's currently appealing that decision. But in the meantime, Coronado thumbing its nose at state housing law carries risks. The state can sue the city into compliance. What happens in San Diego is going to be a little bit of a foreshadowing of what happens throughout the state. John Wizard is with the San Francisco-based nonprofit Yimby Law, which sues cities to enforce state housing laws. He says small, wealthy cities across California are preparing similar fights to get out of their housing obligations. But San Diego County is the first region to go through that planning process. That means Coronado could be a test case for how aggressively the state cracks down on scofflaw cities. For Wizard, it's not just a question of following the law. It's a question of fairness and equity. And when Coronado says, we don't have to do what the state told us, we don't have to do our fair share, we don't have to pull our weight, but everybody else does, what Coronado is saying is that we're special and that we don't believe that you deserve to live here. Evangelina Preciado, the hotel worker who can't afford to live in Coronado, has a similar message for the city's leaders. I will say to them that everybody deserves a very nice home because we are working hard and um, our families deserve a very good uh, place to live too. Joining me is KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, welcome. Hi, Maureen. So Carnado is basically an island. Would the city have to build more high-rises to accommodate nearly 1,000 homes? Absolutely not, although you might think so if you've been following this story and hearing what some of the residents and city officials have been saying throughout the process. Uh, most of the city's residential areas are zoned for single-family homes, so a very low density, um, low building heights, things like that. And in a very high opportunity, highly sought-after city like Coronado, that's basically the equivalent of saying nothing can be built here except for mansions, because even smaller homes um, very often sell for more than a million dollars. So those areas could be uh, rezoned for apartments. You raise the density, um, not, you know, to a, the scale of a high rise, but maybe a mid rise apartment, you can fit quite a bit of homes into uh, something like three or four stories. But uh, single family home zoning is uh, kind of like a third rail in local politics, certainly in Coronado. So when single-family neighborhoods are untouchable, then that really limits where home builders can add more housing. And so pushing all of the new housing to just a couple of lots, as Coronado is trying to do here, ironically makes uh, high-rises uh, kind of more likely. And what are Coronado city leaders saying about why they don't want to increase density? Well, city leaders and residents alike have been railing against these new housing obligations from the start uh, years ago. 
in the public meetings that the city has held, in written comments that the city has received from residents, people will say things like, this will increase traffic, it will block our views, it will lower our property values, it will make parking more scarce. And one of the most common phrases you hear is that this will destroy our community character. It's not always clear what people mean by that community character. Uh, sometimes they seem to be just talking about the architectural style. You know, they like their historic homes. There are a lot of those in Coronado. Other times it seems like community character is more referring to the people and who can afford to live in Coronado now versus who would be able to afford to live in Coronado if there were more of a range of options, things like duplexes and smaller apartments and things like that. Isn't there an additional element advocating racial equity and fairness in the state mandate to build more houses in communities like Coronado and are city leaders addressing that issue in any way? Yeah, one of the biggest new requirements from the state is that cities have, as they update their housing elements, which are, is what this is officially called, they have to affirmatively further fair housing. What the government never did was attempt to make up for all of the centuries of, of legal uh, discrimination and segregation, pe- things like barring people of color from living in certain neighborhoods. You know, it's no accident that Coronado is more than 80% white. So uh, this requirement of affirmatively furthering fair housing housing, it requires every city, uh, Coronado included, to take actions that proactively undo the damage and the inequity and the segregation that was caused by those past policies. And this is an area where the state, uh, state housing officials, as they were reviewing, reviewing Coronado's draft housing element, they saw big shortcomings in what the city had proposed. But again, as with the number, uh, the city just decided it wasn't going to do what the state had asked. Now, you say Coronado's first attempt at suing to get the housing mandate reduced lost in court. Coronado is appealing its loss in court. Is a drawn-out legal battle part of the city's strategy of noncompliance? Yeah, uh, so basically, um, the city is banking on the assumption that state housing officials are going to be really busy dealing with a number of cities like Coronado that are um, either pushing the the bounds of what's allowed or just um, completely ignoring them altogether. Uh, the The existing lawsuit uh, um, does have you know a ways to go before it's heard before a judge in the court of appeal. There are other ways that the city can kind of draw out this process. And there was a council member who last month, as the city council was um, deciding it wanted to scale back its housing plan, council member Michael Donovan said that with our existing lawsuit, with all of the other things that the state has going on, it'll probably be a couple of years before uh, we really uh, see the consequences of not having a certified housing element. And those consequences could be the city loses authority over land use. Uh, A developer could come in, um, sue the city, get a building permit from a judge, and build whatever they want, pretty much wherever they want, if they own that property. San Diego is apparently the first region to try to update its housing plans to accommodate the new state housing mandates. What's happening in the rest of the state? 
Well, as I said, there's uh, you know a number of cities that are pushing back against these new requirements. San Diego is the first county in the state to go through this new process under these new rules. And so it's um, definitely uh, testing the state's patience and the state's uh, aggressiveness in terms of how, how much they want to crack down on these cities. But yeah, there are cities uh, in L.A. County, in the Bay Area that are all fighting these higher uh, mandates for housing. And many of them are uh, just saying they want to fight this as long as possible. Some of these things, you know, I think that the, the end of the road is coming uh, and the state may eventually just be able to get what they want because there's um, very clearly, uh, you know, the state government has authority over local governments. Uh, but things can, can be drawn out for a few years and that's likely to happen in Coronado. I've been speaking with KPBS Metro reporter Andrew Bowen. Andrew, thank you. Thank you, Maureen. Critics of Governor Gavin Newsom say his COVID-19 restrictions were unfair and damaging to small businesses, thousands of which permanently closed during the pandemic. Now, as KQED politics reporter Guy Marzarati explains, Newsom is emphasizing his small business roots as he faces a recall election in September. In Calaveras County, tucked in the foothills of the Sierra in California's gold country, nearly one in five voters signed the petition to recall Newsom, the third highest rate of any county in the state. And small business owners like Gretel Tuscornia were at the heart of the campaign. Like shirt, Tuscornia owns the Pickle Patch restaurant yeah, in San Andreas and Mingo's on Main, a store in downtown Angel's Camp. Kind of a, just an eclectic group of snarky items that make people laugh when they come in. When the pandemic hit, Tuscornia closed her shop but felt big business was getting a pass. Places like Walmart and Costco that are open all the time serving hundreds of people. Super contradictory. Newsom had set up a color-coded system to restrict business activities, which he credits with saving lives. But Tuscornia felt whiplash. I kind of just got to the point where I was just tired of the, oh, it's it's red, oh, it's purple, oh, it's green, oh, it's blue, oh, it's, I don't know what color the rainbow we were in this time. So when the governor declared a second stay-at-home order in December, Tuscornia and other local business owners in Calaveras decided to ignore it. So I just stopped listening and I just went about business as usual. Tuscornia stayed open for outdoor dining with a new item on the menu, a petition to recall the governor. Sometimes they came in just to sign that. They didn't have lunch. They didn't buy anything. They just came in to sign it. Recall organizers say 900 business owners across the state offered petition signings in their shops. Others went viral with their outrage. You might remember Angela Marsden, an L.A. area restaurant owner whose business was shuttered while film production continued right next door. And Gavin Newsom is responsible for every single person that doesn't have unemployment, that does not have a job, and all the businesses that are going under. Thanks in part to the anger of these small business owners, Newsom is facing the most important political challenge of his career. But as the governor tells it, a quarter century ago, he was in the same shoes as these store owners. In the 90s, Newsom ran a wine shop and restaurants and felt politicians were out of touch with the needs of small business. So he complained to the mayor of San Francisco. That guy, Willie Brown, was angry with me and shut me up by making me chair of the Parking and Traffic Commission. And here I am. It's all damn connected. Being the frustrated store owner was Newsom's original political pitch two decades ago. His experiences in small business, 
he felt like he could help people using those experiences. Ellie Schaefer ran Newsom's very first campaign, his 1998 run for supervisor. Unlike your average shop owner, Newsom had ties to some of San Francisco's wealthiest and most well-connected families. He still ran up against roadblock after roadblock about starting his small business. And his philosophy, you know, at the time was like, if I'm running up against these roadblocks and I have the leg up that I have, what are other people who don't have these advantages running up against? Now, as business owners face months of back rent after a year of digging into personal savings and watching inventory go bad, Newsom is directing billions of dollars in grants to help those businesses get back on their feet. And he argues that he still gets it, that he uniquely understands their plight. After all, to find the last governor who went straight from running a business into politics, you'd have to go back roughly a century. At a visit to a San Francisco restaurant last month, I asked Newsom if that history made him feel a special responsibility to small business owners across the state. It's a big point of pride. It's personal for me. Um, you know, I can't express to you how many extraordinary things have happened in my life because I had the privilege to be behind a counter serving other people. Back in Calaveras County, Gretel Tascornia isn't convinced. I don't know if Newsom ever can be considered one of us. And now the governor has less than a month until voting begins to convince California shop owners that he still understands what they're going through. That was KQED reporter Guy Marzarotti. Public radio programs attract educated consumers and business decision makers. You can reach this highly desirable audience with your company's marketing message on KPBS. Isn't it time to make our listeners your customers? Find out how by calling 619-594-5715 today. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Christina Kim, in for Jade Heidman with Maureen Cavanaugh. For the first time, surfing is on the Olympic stage. On Friday, the ocean sport, beloved by many San Diegans, will be underway as the newest event at the Summer Games in Tokyo. And while fans are rejoicing, some are raising concerns that a native Hawaiian cultural practice has been co-opted into the multi-billion dollar industry that it's become. Joining me now for more on this is Isaiah Helekunihi Walker, a professor at Brigham Young University, Hawaii, and author of the book, Waves of Resistance. Isaiah, welcome. Uh, good morning, aloha. So can you just start off by telling us a little bit about the history of surfing? What are surfing's origins? So surfing probably originated in other Pacific islands before the first Hawaiians actually came to the islands of Hawaii. They were part of a larger group of people that we call the Oceania or Moana people of the Pacific Ocean. And so along with that tradition of comfortability in the ocean came this playfulness of you know, spending time riding waves. So in Hawaii, it was a national pastime practiced by both men, women, commoners, chiefs. We sometimes refer to surfing as the sport of kings, which is partly true. Yeah, because kings did surf, but so did everyone else. Such a rich history. So how did the sport come to be what it is today, which is a multi-billion dollar industry that is worldwide? I think we can point to, I mean, speaking of Olympics, is what we, who we call the father of modern day surfing is a, a Hawaiian man named Duke Kahanamoku. And Duke Kahanamoku, when he traveled the world in the Olympics and he ended up winning multiple gold medals, 
and mostly his freestyle event, he took surfing with him and he ended up spreading surfing to places like Australia, the East Coast of the United States, along with many other Hawaiians as they came to California and shared the art of riding waves or what we call he'enalu. We're able to kind of start to spread that. And eventually, you know, surfing is awesome. It's a great feeling. It's, it gives you a real connection to the ocean and it's a healthy pastime and it's attractive. So I think it was just a matter of time before the world got to enjoy what the Hawaiians have been enjoying for centuries. The inclusion of surfing in the Olympic Games is seen as somewhat of a double-edged sword for Native Hawaiians, who might be happy to see it be included, but are also reminded about Hawaii's complicated history. Can you tell us a little bit more about that tension? It's an interesting story, and I, I love the fact that, that right now, because of the Olympics and surfing, you know, there is a lot more attention looking at Hawaii and, and, its, and this history. But essentially, when Hawaii was occupied, essentially, in 1893 through 1898, there was basically an illegal overthrow of our of our government. It was a monarchy run by Hawaiian monarchs, and many of those monarchs actually were surfers. But what happens is, as Hawaii becomes occupied by the U.S. military, essentially, for Pearl Harbor, the situation on land becomes much more complex and challenging for Native Hawaiians as they're finding themselves increasingly marginalized in political spaces, social spaces, economic spaces. And so surfing remained kind of that really cool space. And interestingly enough, the surfing world recognized that. And for the last, you know, 100 years, the surfing world has seen Hawaii as an independent entity as far as surfing goes. So, for example, right now we have Carissa Moore and John John Florence surfing for the United States team and in all realms of competition from the ISA, which is currently the governing body of the Olympics, to the NSSA, to the WSL, to all these different competitive um, entities have respected Hawaii as its own nation. So when the Olympics was announced that it would be having surfing in the, in the Olympics, we knew that it would be a, you know, a struggle for Hawaiians to have that same designation. We did submit an application to the IOC requesting that uh, Hawaii be considered its own independent entity. So what is the next step there? Where, did you make any gains about potentially having, you know, the Hawaiian flag be represented when these athletes are surfing? The Olympics has a kind of a different way of, of recognizing, uh, you know, a national status. But in their bylaws, they state that if, you, if your nation has been recognized by the international community as an independent state. So under the Hawaiian Kingdom government, Hawaii was recognized, actually it was one of the first non-European countries recognized as an independent state in the mid-1850s. We had many treaties with, you know, the United States, but also a lot of most European countries had entered into treaties with, you know, Hawaii recognizing it as an independent state. So when we applied, we were hoping to use that as part of our distinction. But we have been recognized by the international community as an independent state, not only anciently or in the 1850s, but even more recently in a particular court case in The Hague. So we're hoping that the IOC would consider at least evaluating our application. And we haven't you know, had much success yet, but we're hoping for the next Olympics that maybe Hawaii will have a shot. Well, as we all watch on Friday, what do you want people outside of Hawaii to really know about this sport and keep in mind as we watch the athletes? 
I love the fact that surfing is, you know, a global sport and entity, and it is something that has been shared with Hawaii, uh, with from Hawaii throughout the world. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I don't want to get the idea that like this is a, a horrible thing and that Hawaiians are upset about that. It's more so just understanding where the roots of surfing are from and respecting it. And I think most surfers, when they come to Hawaii, they have that that feeling of respect. And also that our athletes, even though you know they are surfing for the United States, which I know they're they're very proud of. They're also carrying the Hawaiian flag in their hearts. I've been speaking to Isaiah Helikunihi Walker, a professor at Brigham Young University, Hawaii. Thank you so much. Thank you. Cinema Junkie is KPBS's longest-running podcast, and it returned from quarantine break last week. Since Marvel's Black Widow just opened and Comic-Con starts this week, the latest episode celebrates pop culture by looking at the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Here's an excerpt from the podcast featuring host Beth Accomando and her guest, Professor Arnold T. Blumberg. Dr. Arnold T. Blumberg has the distinction of teaching the first-of-its-kind course on the Marvel Cinematic Universe back in 2015 at the University of Baltimore. The class was called Media Genres, Media Marvels. So Arnold, what did the course description for this class say? Well, it grew out of the similar course that I had already been doing for years on the zombie genre. That was the first time I had done sort of a genre-specific course at UB, and that had been very successful. So. A few years into that, I came to them with Media Marvels. I thought, okay, I think they would probably go for it at this point because the zombie course was doing well. And in some ways, it was even easier to set up because at that point, we were just getting up to Age of Ultron when I did it. Hello, I am Jarvis. You are Ultron, a global peacekeeping initiative designed by Mr. Stark. This feels wrong. I'm a peacekeeping program created to help the Avengers. I don't get it. The mission. Give me a second. It wound up fitting perfectly into basically a 16-week semester of giving them the historical background of Marvel and the comic world, where the characters come from, a little bit of grounding in mythology and, and heroic literature of the past, and then we started going through every film from Iron Man up to the present, and the semester ended with everybody going to the Senator Theater for a screening of Age of Ultron. It was great. So when you set up this course, what was the response like from both students and administrators? Uh, university itself was already, certainly the department that handled the media literacy stuff, they understood where I was coming from and where the benefit was in using a genre as a lens for talking about anything socially, culturally, and otherwise. So that part was fine, and they were totally receptive to that. As far as the students were concerned, the interest was immediate, as you might expect. But what I did find right out of the gate on that one, from what I can remember, was that in some respects, I think it worked even better, quicker than the zombie course did, in the sense that it felt like everybody clicked in immediately to the idea that we're not just doing this frivolously. Attention all S.H.I.E.L.D. agents. This is Steve Rogers. We're not just sitting here talking about the films. We're going to look at them in a substantial way and try to figure out you know, what they mean, what they're reflecting. And it worked really well. I know I'm asking a lot. 
The price of freedom is high. It always has been. And it's a price I'm willing to pay. And if I'm the only one, then so be it. But I'm willing to bet I'm not. So what kind of public response did you deal with? The response publicly was exactly what you'd think it would be. <laughs> as far as I'm concerned, the people that start attacking it for, oh, is this what our tax dollars are going for? Oh, this is why American children are falling behind. Oh, that that's just the kind of just complete willful ignorance that has led to such an incredible lack of critical thinking and the kind of media literacy we desperately need, especially in a world where organizations are doing everything within their power to manipulate people into believing falsehoods. And of course, they very well know how critical thinking and media literacy works. So these courses are not just a fun way of teaching students, they're vital. And actually, they're vital for much younger They shouldn't be teaching these just in colleges. We should be teaching media literacy from the beginning, and we don't. But apart from the usual kind of garbage you get online about, you know, why would people waste a semester with that? Actually, the response was still, for the most part, pretty nice. I mean, one of the things about a class like this that I think is great is that so often you'll get students who kind of glaze over at the idea of classes that have a very kind of academic sound to them. And... To take something that they already have an inherent interest in just seems like a great way to capture their interest and get them to come to class very eagerly. And it seems like a gateway to teaching that, you know, teachers should embrace and then the public should appreciate. Absolutely. That's the fundamental thing that's at work there is you already have like a steep slope at times to get kids engaged and particularly to get them involved in conversation about all sorts of things, whether that's race and gender and other politics and cultural issues and social issues. And if they're already excited about the fact that they get to talk about things they love, the one thing you find out pretty quickly is their discussion about those things is usually not very empty. It's usually very substantial. I remember, like, the zombie class, Walking Dead had just debuted. It was literally the first season of Walking Dead when we first started that class. And naturally, one of the first things I did was, let's watch the show every week and we'll talk about it. And there was that one particular episode that really hit one of those early points. I mean, not subtly, where they had the women were doing the laundry at the, like, the river's edge. I'm beginning to question the division of labor here. Can someone explain to me how the women wound up doing all the head of McDaniel work? The world ended. Didn't you get the memo? It's just the way it is. I do miss my Maytag. It was like a whole episode about, is this what we're going to do? Are we going to devolve back to these ridiculous gender roles for things? And the conversation in the class after that episode wasn't like, oh, wasn't the zombie thing cool? Or that was a fun part, but an incredibly deep and charged and very informed discussion about everybody's opinion about that. And that's why you do something like this. Can you imagine trying to get those kids to talk about things like that without that entryway? I mean, that's... That's how it works. And what was it that made you decide to tackle Marvel and not DC? Was it strictly because of what films were coming out at that particular moment? Well, partly. I mean, I was always a Marvel kid. So, I mean, I've certainly read my share of 
DC stuff, and I'm certainly, in some respects, because of my other work, having worked at uh, the Overstreet Comic Book Price Guide, and, and I'm certainly very familiar with DC stuff, but Marvel has always been where emotionally I'm connected. I knew I could speak to that material with a, with a conviction that I probably couldn't necessarily give as much to the DC, although I've taught courses in superhero mythology too and used plenty of Superman, Wonder Woman, Batman, all that kind of stuff because it's vitally important for that part of the history of it all. But, you know, there's something to be said for the fact that the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they started building was just so incredibly successful and cohesive and fascinating. And DC has continued to demonstrate that when it comes to comic book movies, Marvel seems to be the only one that really knows how to make it work. And I'll be happy to, to continue to defend that particular perspective on it. So it was a little personal. It was also a little bit, this is a nice single narrative through line we can look at through a whole semester. Cinema Junkie podcast comes out every other Wednesday. You can register for this Thursday's free YouTube Cinema Junkie relaunch party at kpbs.org slash cinema junkie.